All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Key in the Late Podcast, the premier whiskey podcast without the mention of whiskey in the title whatsoever. This is Jake coming to you all by myself in my apartment uh, via Skype with a very special guest. Wilson couldn't join me because he has big plans during the quarantine and couldn't make this interview, even though we've been trying to make this interview happen for over the last year. When I first began the podcast a little over a year ago, I made a list of about 10 people I wanted to have on initially, and tonight's guest was on that initial list and with that i will I guess i'll just introduce who he is a very special man in my life a special man in wilson's life too i just i'm disappointed that he couldn't make it this evening but you know each to their own i guess when it comes to the quarantine life but with us tonight is mike hoffman of coval distillery my former co-worker good friend all-around great guy and mike welcome to the podcast Hey, thanks for having me. What, uh, what an intro there. Glad we could uh, finally make it happen. Yeah, it's been a hard. You've been a hard get. You and a couple other people are still. Uh, I have to cross off on that list. I'm like, all right, all right. Here we go, one by one. So, the quarantine life brings us all together. Fortunately. Yep. Yes, it does. What uh, what exactly? I don't. I never know if it's like lead distiller, lead production manager, what your exact title is these days. Uh, yeah, I would just say uh, production manager or distillery manager. One of the two. Sounds really important. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure if you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard Wilson and I talk about how Wilson and I met over at Koval um, during our time working at the Chicago-based distillery. It was my first whiskey job um, in, the, in the industry. Um, I had been doing some writing for some beer publications prior to that and things like that. But uh, Cobal was my very first job um, actually working in whiskey. I can remember the first time I actually met Mike. Um, he was just coming back from vacation. I think you're coming back from like South Carolina. Does that sound right, maybe? Uh, North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina. Okay. I remember you were at like Taffy Inn or something. I was like, oh, this is, this guy's a nice guy. But then he's wearing an Iowa State hat. And I was like, oh. Is he a nice guy? Go if you don't, yeah, go Cyclones. If you didn't know, I'm a big Iowa Hawkeye fan. But I was like, oh, cool. There's somebody I can relate to. And being the new guy in the company, you never know like how you're going to adjust. But at the time, we had a pretty cool, um, pretty great, awesome team uh, back then. So it was pretty easy to adjust. Um, but yeah, it was uh, Mike was somebody who I um, I I probably bothered a lot more than I did any good for him. Uh, I used to run run around the distillery, take photos, move barrels. Not the I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I had an office job, but I think I spent much more about half my time in the distillery too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of running around. Um, but Mike was kind of one of the guys that was uh, a mentor, if you will, of like learning about the actual distillation process and the whole production process when it comes to making whiskey. You know, simple parts of it, like you know the the mash bill. There's fermenters. There's distill. There's stills. But it was actually from you kind of learning the whole technological um, basis from everything when it comes to producing the whiskey that we love. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of one of those things. That's how uh, a lot of people learn it from from other people because you know not not a whole lot of people actually. It's tough to study actual distilling. Most people go on it with some sort of engineering degree or chemistry degree or, or something like that. So a lot of people learn it, uh, you know, from other people. Yeah, or a graphic design degree like yourself. Uh, well, yeah, super useful in the <laughs> distilling trade. I remember when uh, we first started working together. I don't know when I, you actually told me that you were the first. Were you the first graphic designer at Cobol as an intern? Uh, not the first intern. Probably the first full-time person i want to say okay um yeah when I, when I came in so i came in in 2013 okay. 
2013. And uh, yeah, they, we had a bunch of interns and you know a few full-time people. And there was two guys out in the distillery, <laughs> John and Nick. So uh, yeah, John Clatt. Yeah, yep. Ranger John. Nice. Yeah. So how did it all go from you getting from you know being a graphic designer to working out in the distillery? Well, it was a, a, a much more natural transition than it sounds like. Uh, my background, along with uh, graphic design, was uh, in construction, in uh, the construction trades, uh, since I worked for my dad. Um, from the time I was, you know, too young to actually know what was going on until, you know, after college. So a good, uh, you know, 15 or so years of my life, I was uh, kind of doing that. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff out in the distillery is building systems, maintaining systems, fixing things, uh, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, and I'd also, you know, on the more technical side, I had done a lot of uh, learning on my own, a lot of reading, watching videos, all that sort of stuff to actually learn, you know, the fermentation and, and distillation processes. Because at the time when you started, uh, the company was still using both facilities, correct? Yes, yes. I don't remember exactly when they moved into uh, our current warehouse, but uh, it was, I came on pretty shortly thereafter. So how big were the stills when you were first started? So we had the the 300 liter, which was up at the storefront. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't, it, well, I guess it was still being used. That's what we made gin on initially. That's right. And uh, right when I came on, they had the 2,000 liter still. Uh, that was still there. And then right when I was, so that was kind of while I was in the office. Mm-hmm. And right when I was coming out into the distillery itself, um, that was when they were transitioning from the, the 2,000 liter to the 5,000 liter. So okay. it was kind of cool. I got to use both of those right when I was starting. Yeah, I feel like the when I started in beginning of 2015, the 5,000 liter hadn't been there that long. It was still pretty shiny at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that came in yeah winter 2013. So okay, you know, not too long. Awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess we try to talk about a little bit of the background of Cobalt. People aren't familiar with uh, the Chicago Distillery, which um, is either the first or second, which I found out recently, uh, largest um, urban distillery in the world. I don't know if you knew that. Interesting. Yeah. Here's the other one. Uh, Star Ward. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, our founder was in town last time in, in December, we drove by Cobol, um, going up the Fountainhead, and I was like, "Oh, here's Cobol." He's like, "Wait, so how far are we from downtown?" I'm like, "Ah, eh, like five, six miles." And he's like, "Interesting. I'm like, why?" He's like, "Well, another square footage about the same as ours, but we're only about a mile and a half from downtown Melbourne. So either." The way you see it, one of us is the biggest uh, urban distillery in the world. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm glad I had the pleasure of working for both. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, about Cobol, it's uh, one of the very first craft distilleries, uh, kind of all in America, is the beginning boom of this about 12 years now? Companies been around? Uh, yeah, started in, uh, in 08, so... Yeah, my the the year I left, we just celebrated our 10 year anniversary, I believe, mm-hmm. um, in 2018, the summer of 2018. Uh, but yeah, it was one of the very first uh, craft distillers, kind of along with the movement of creating really great whiskey um, at a small scale, Chicago based, 100 uh, um, percent 
not 100% kosher, but um, organic. At the time, I'm thinking of kosher for some reason, but uh, an organic oh, distillery yeah. that, yeah. But uh, I'm trying to remember my pitches right now of <laughs> all yep. of my tour, all my tours, tours and events uh, that I did back in the day. But yeah, I'll let you go ahead and explain what the company's all about. Um, we're uh, you know organic. We are kosher. We are indeed kosher. No. Um, you know, we try to source everything from the Midwest. We do everything. We like to say drain to bottle all in our, uh, our warehouse up in Ravenswood. Uh, um, we make uh, a bunch of different whiskeys, a couple mixed grain mash bills, uh, and a bunch of single grain, hundred percent single grain whiskeys, uh, as well as, um, a few different gins, a dry gin, a barrel gin, and, uh, ever so popular cranberry gin now. Uh, seems like along with uh vodka and some uh some fun liqueurs as well yeah definitely it's a large lineup of um of skews for the company it was always <laughs> interesting <laughs> for watching you guys try to play your way through it when orders came in especially during your high seasons of um during sond and like oh we don't have any ginger liqueur left and now we need to make some of that we don't have any chrysanthemum honey should we make more of that it's like oh like okay well time to bottle these uh barrels of bourbon that we have left over at the warehouse but haven't been transferred over to any other warehouses that the company was using at the time Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging when, uh, you know, one distributor is ordering 25, 30 different SKUs. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely, um, from the time I started, we were, I think we had a little bit of an international footprint, but by the time I left three and a half, four years later, um, it seems like it, the international market was going to be playing a big part in Cobol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does it, go ahead. I mean, Europe's been huge for us. Um, Japan, huge whiskey culture there, of course. Um, but, you know, it's, it's strange places, too, places you wouldn't think of, um, you know, like Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, South Africa, yeah. um, you know, just kind of everywhere. Yeah, definitely. It's been – it was it was kind of the the eye-opening experience. I remember when I first started how much uh, Robert Bunecker, who um, is one of the founders of the company, along with his wife Sonnet, how much international travel they were doing for whiskey fests all over all over the world, and then along with um, installing the Kota stills as well, which is part of their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, if you, yeah, go ahead and you can talk about that. What's yeah? It's just a very uh, international company. You know, like yeah. you said, it comes from uh, you know one of our founders, Robert. He was grew up in uh, in Austria and. You know, we kind of have that presence, or at least we're trying to have that presence, uh, kind of all over the world. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool to see the influence too, and how um, Cobol uses very unique grains when making um, their whiskeys, like spelt and millet in the past, and <laughs> putting the millet even inside of the bourbon, which makes for a really interesting take on bourbon. Uh, which one of it was one of my like, uh, I guess, gateway bourbons, definitely into craft, but kind of in along the lines of. Looking for uh, smoother qualities because it is bottled at 94, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's but it's a, it's a really light tasting to it and such a drinkable um, bourbon in that aspect as well. But it was uh, just an eye-opening experience working for the company there and learning all about whiskey and distilling. Then also what grains could be used to actually make whiskey while still following the guidelines of American whiskey products too. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of our our whiskeys are a really good chance to actually taste those individual grains too. Yeah, the, you know, the the single grain ones are 100% of that grain in the mash bill. Um, so you know whether it be a wheat or you know even back when we did the spelt, um, you know they all have their different uh, 
flavors and nuances. Definitely. What's been the biggest shift since you've, or transition, I guess, um, since you started with the company to where you're going now, obviously, um, minus the whole hand sanitizer aspect of going just creating products right now. Um, I mean, definitely scale. Um, you know, when I came in in 2013, I think in that first year we, you know, went up by over a hundred percent in sales mm-hmm. and, you know, it, uh, you know, it hasn't stopped. So it definitely being able to scale up our processes because at heart, a lot of our processes are meant for a, a smaller scale. Like all our, our whiskeys are single, uh, cask, single barrel. Um, so that's sometimes that's a hard process to scale. Um, you know, we went from making gin in, uh, a 300 liter still and macerating or grinding the, the botanicals in a, a little ninja blender yeah. to, uh, to having to make it on a, on a much larger scale for, right. uh, for our dry gin. And then uh, now of course our cran gin. So it's uh, yeah, I would definitely say scaling everything up, trying to maintain quality and uh, you know, fill all of our many SKUs. Yeah, definitely. Cause how many were you, how many whiskeys were you making when you first started? Oh goodness. Uh, I mean, counting all of the the white and toasted barrels. True. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably. I, for sure. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, because I remember like, when I first came on, I was like, "What's the difference between a toasted whiskey and a charred whiskey? Like the barrels, you know, everything with that, and learning kind of everything on the fly as you're going. And then there's always white whiskeys of everything we produce. So it's really quite quite the um, the unique lineup of whiskeys to go mm-hmm. around, but it also attracted a lot of people, um, to the distillery, a lot of bars, like playing around with our white whiskeys, like transit mm-hmm. or basically supplanting, um, tequila or vodka. Uh, it's kind of cool to see that. Cause when I think when I first started, it was definitely like a Midwest kind of more of a neighborhood Chicago brand, if you will. And ever since then, it's been over the last five, six years, it's been really expanding into uh, a national and an international brand. I actually saw a bottle of the toasted rye in a bar in San Diego like two months ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, Hey, where did you get that? And the guy's like, I don't know. It's weird. I don't, no one drinks it. I'm like, do you know what it is? He's like, not really. And I was like telling him about it. I'm like, well, it was, inter- it was really great, like rye grains. Um, and it has a pretty nice spiciness to it as well. I don't remember exactly the flavor profile of it, um, but it's a pretty unique bottle. Like you should make some fun cocktails or, you know, kind of pitch it to people. And then I went back, um, this is about four months ago. And then I went back again and it was, it was still there about maybe half drink though. But at this point, yeah, it's I weird mean, to see those out in the wild. A lot of the, the toasted, and the the white whiskey offerings were were really tasty. They just didn't really move well as products. So it's kind of hard to keep stocking those if you're only selling you know ten cases a year versus yeah bourbon, which is like ten cases a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no. And people back then, this is you know only five, this is only five years ago, but the drinking culture was so much different than it is now. It's so much transition, trans, so much has transitioned into a very sophisticated palate all across the nation and all across the world that people didn't really understand even what a white whiskey was. People didn't understand what a toasted whiskey was for sure. Uh, white whiskey had the connotation with it being moonshine, so everyone's like, oh, it's gonna taste like gut, uh, gut, whatever, rock, and um, all of that. And it's like actually no, it's pretty tasty and elegant and a very smooth, uh, smooth style of spirit. But uh, it just kind of shows you how much everything has changed in a very small period of time. 
For sure. And then, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of room to go. You know, I think people kind of have a handle on more of the beer and wine scene, but a lot yeah. of the spirits process and, and products are still kind of unknown to most people. They'll know them by name, but not really what they are or how they're made or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. I think the you mentioning the beer scene uh, here in Chicago is you know a plethora of breweries, and we have one of the best beer scenes probably in the entire world. I think those smaller local brands and building on a craft level really helped uh, Koval and helped the other distilleries to be able to grow too inside the city and expand out um, in other markets because we had. Um, people do it before. There's a lot of laws that had to be changed when it came to distilling, and Robert and Son had a lot to do with that in the state of Illinois and also in Chicago and Cook County. Um, but they had a little bit of uh, like a plan to go off of when you have like your Goose Islands that are established here and now one of the biggest breweries, uh, crap, uh, whatever size of brewery you want to call them, um, kind of in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did yeah even talking about that a little bit like about the laws that Koval had to get changed even to produce whiskey um, in Chicago? Yeah, um, I mean I know they've had you know many trips to uh, you know to with politicians and everything to try and get things changed to make it easier for the smaller guys in the game because for for a long time it was you know just these big large conglomerates making whiskey. I, know, yep. I, don't, I don't know a lot of the specific uh, legislation, but uh, I, I know they were trying to get it a lot easier for the smaller producers to actually produce, you know, what they wanted in amounts they wanted without, you know, getting right. taxed huge amounts and, you know, trying to cut through some of that red tape. Always fun to cut through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and which is really cool because, um, gosh, it was it was seen a little bit. Uh, I don't know what the correct word for it. A little serendipitous, a little sad as well. Um, when I first started, the whole talk about the company was how much we were going to expand into a new warehouse. Because at the time, we had probably about 12,000, 14,000 square feet of warehouse um, we were producing in. Barrel aging, but mostly barrel aging in as well. Yeah, uh, yeah just a, kind of a very much of a very tight circumstances when it came to the whole entire operation. And uh, we eventually bought the entire building, like what, 45,000 square feet total? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that sounds right. We over doubled our warehouse space and then yeah. added, uh, you know, a ton of office buildings as well. Yeah, and it was the last business day of 2016 when like every all the signatures that like, came in and everything. And I remember Robert was in the office like 5:30 on a Friday, the last Friday of the year, and like he's a he's a pretty stoic guy and doesn't really get excited about a lot of things. But I remember him like yeah, like, yelling like that. And I just walked in from the bathroom and I'm like, what happened? He's like, everything cleared, uh, and then that became the whole space. And a year and a half later. Um, we started knocking down the walls literally with sledgehammers such, such, uh, and stuff. Yeah. And it was my last day at the office. So it's kind of weird to see it finally all take shape and um, been through once or twice since it, uh, everything opened. But how has that all changed with uh, the space of operation and um, the amount you guys are producing to this day? Uh, well, I mean, having more space has been unbelievable. Uh, you know, there were some days um, when we hadn't expanded that it was, you couldn't move a pallet around. Right. Um, so that's that's definitely been nice. Um, you know, it allows us to be more organized, mm-hmm. we have more more places to put the you know stock and, and everything like that. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of made things easier. And you know, we're kind of still outgrowing it again. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, that's yeah, crazy to think. I mean, especially with all the 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 sanitizer stuff. You know, we have to bring in all 
kind of new stuff with all our regularly stocked products. So it's busting at the seams right now. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I think the the building will definitely serve us well. The neighborhood is is amazing. I think it's yeah. a really awesome place to be to be making spirits and you know or beer or whatever along Malt Row. So I think it'll be a good home for us. Yeah, definitely. So and kind of a good way of getting into uh, what you guys are doing as a distillery now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the company announced that you guys were making hand sanitizer for medical people on the front lines, um, healthcare workers, also first responders. And it seems like when you guys were one of the very first craft distilleries to kind of jump on board of that, and even one of the very first distilleries that I noticed overall, because there's some still pretty large guys out there that aren't doing it, um, but you guys were really much on the forefront. Yeah, um, I mean, all all credit to uh, to my bosses on that one, Robert and Tom and Mark. They were really uh, not only ahead of the curve on the sanitizer, but also just kind of ahead of the curve on um, having our office staff um, you know, start working from home and really trying to get out in front of it. Um, and then, you know, in terms of actually making the sanitizer, um, we were pretty much acting as soon as we got word that the, the TTB restrictions were, were going to be lifted. Uh, we kind of started planning and, um, you know, trying to get our hands on some, some containers to bottle them in and really hit the ground running once, uh, once we knew those restrictions were going to be lifted. What were those first conversations like? I mean, a lot of it was trying to source things. Um, I don't know if uh, the the other guests you've had on have talked about it, but just trying to find bottles yeah, yeah. has been really, really challenging for for a lot of people. Um, we're doing predominantly uh, one-gallon plastic jugs right now, okay. um, which we, we seem to be getting and uh, be able to get in pretty good quantities. Um, so that's worked pretty well for us. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, you, you know, you got to get your ingredients um, we're using the uh, the World Health Organization recipe, um, so you know we had to get our, our glycerin, our hydrogen peroxide, um, yeah, and then we started batching and went from there. Yeah, and I think for I'd assume it was a little bit easier because you guys do create vodka, like you do create those neutral grain spirits a little bit more than some other distilleries. You use corn a lot more than, like I was talking to Sagamore, it's like we use 2% corn at most in one of our rye whiskeys. So it's something we don't even, it's a grain we don't even work with that much, at least to the scale that they're using it now. Right. Yeah. And and we are of a a certain size, you know, I think pretty large for a craft distillery. So, you know, that definitely does allow us to operate with a, a little more you know, economies of scale than some smaller distilleries, which, uh, you know, yeah, allows us to, to make more. Uh, do you still just have the one 5,000 liter still? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep, so we, you're were, doing... we were going to get another one and then we're kind of working on the, the cafe there. So I think that's okay. a backseat for a little bit. But. Yeah, definitely. Um, what were, was it mostly just state laws you had to get past then with a TTB to um, have you as able to start so fast in production of hand sanitizer? Um, I believe it was inter, or, uh, nationwide laws. Okay. Um, I'm, not, I'm not positive off the top of my head, but basically you're, you weren't allowed to distill both from my understanding. So we had uh, you know, a permit for um, you know, drinkable alcohol, and they really don't want anyone doing both. Um, I may be butchering that, but yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they were they were getting lobbied on that, so they decided to change it. And then, as soon as we heard uh, on that front, we started uh, planning everything. 
what was your first reaction when they told you you're going to do it? Well, I, I really didn't even appreciate the scale, to be honest, for a while. You know, I was kind of looking around warehouse trying to find, you know, we have you know, 50 ml bottles, 100 ml bottles. I was thinking more like person than person. And then we were like, uh, Mark, Mark was talking to me and he was like, no, I think we're thinking gallon jugs. Okay. Like, oh. Yeah, because I, I had the same response too when distilleries. I'm like, oh, cool. They're going to make a little hand sanitizer, like little three ounce bottles for everybody. And then you realize it's not the public that needs it. It's, it's sadly enough. It's the people that are dealing with this on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, and then going home dangerously back to their families that could have been exposed to something because they don't have the right amount of supplies. Absolutely. I mean, we spent our our first three and change weeks just doing it exclusively for uh, healthcare workers and, and first responders, and it, it, the the need is so vast. It's it's really unbelievable. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty great. Was the initial um, idea to do it for those healthcare workers? Like, did basically yeah. okay. Yeah, so we were we were doing all donations, um, you know, to the to healthcare workers and first responders. Um, we had a, a great GoFundMe set up, so all those all those proceeds went directly into that. Um, and it was really just trying to get it out to them, you know, as quickly as as, as we could. Did Did you have local um, hospitals and police departments or fire departments reaching out to you guys to ask for help? Absolutely, yeah. Many, many, many. We got involved with some, um, you know, like healthcare networks to try and uh, make that process a little easier. But I mean, even you know, just policemen, firemen were just stopping by the distillery as well, um, just trying to pick some up. Well, I remember when the fire marshal would come for his checks. There was always a very big group of guys that would come along with him. <laughs> yep. Hoping, hoping to score a sip or two. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's, it's been pretty crazy to see. Um, I think I read an article yesterday saying how there's 3,000 distilleries now that are producing hand sanitizer. And uh, the first conversation I think Wilson and I had was with the Blum Brothers. And they were just shocked about how how do people in the front lines not have this? But then Walmart is like not hoarding, but they just have stockpiles of it in their back because they have the highest amount of – or highest uh, – bid, I guess, when it comes to money to actually get these supplies in store, and then a pandemic breaks out, and consequently, all that is in big store, big box stores, and not where it should be in the emergency rooms and fire departments, uh, shelves, and also in police departments. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's crazy how, how vast the need is and how ill-prepared we were for something like <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's uh, it it's and it keep I keep saying this to every distillery. It reminds me of wartime efforts during World War II, where for distilleries sure. started pro- started producing for the front lines um, over in Europe. Uh, anything they could do to save a little bit of wood uh, when it comes to scaling uh, up uh, on barrels, and then also using less rings of iron. And that's why we have six rings um, on our current barrels today, is because those uh, remnants of the past are right there when it comes to um, to whiskey. It's all around us. Whiskey represents what uh, the past was and how it evolved over the future and it'll be interesting to see how this kind of plays out in creating a different um, not a different role for distilleries but at least to how distilleries are remembered right now in this kind of craft bourbon even whiskey overall boom yeah absolutely I mean I think it's just been really cool to see like you said the amount of distilleries 
you know, taking part in this. And, and to that point, too, just the amount of other industries and other companies taking part in this. Uh, I mean, we've had so many beer donations that it's been, been unbelievable because, um, you know, we can, we can take that beer since it has alcohol in it and, and distill it and, uh, and make hand sanitizer out of it. So, I mean, that's been really cool to see, too, and just kind of across all industries, um, you know, companies trying to, to give back and, and help the situation. Yeah, what um, breweries are you guys working with or donating to your cause? So we've gotten beer from Urban Renewal, Beguile, Metropolitan, Temperance, Midwest Coast, Great Central Brewing, Kingslayer, Oak Park Brewing, um, Lakeshore Beverage, so Bud Light and a bunch of other large brands, Goose Island, uh, Vin 312. Nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really cool just seeing you know everyone try and help. That's amazing. I didn't know that there was that many. I know watching your social media posts and some of the distillers looking at their posts, I saw the Goose Island, I saw Temperance that donated um, a few other places, but I didn't know it was to that scale. But it's really cool to see how, um, well, it kind of gets back to how I think why we all entered this industry is that we saw this community and it's really niche community when it came to beer and whiskey and spirits in general, especially five, six years ago when it was so much more smaller and so much more niche uh, as an audience to reach out to that it was really great to be a part of because it was such a collaborative effort. And I would say throughout the years in between there, it hasn't been lost, but distilleries are growing, breweries are growing, and you're kind of looking after yourself more, which you rightfully so. But this is kind of all bringing us back together and making us think like, hey, we should be doing more things together. I hope it's kind of one of the positive outcomes of all of this. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, on the distillation side and, and as, as companies, we used to work a little more closely with breweries than, mm-hmm. than we currently do. So like you said, I hope this kind of helps bring us all back closer together. I really enjoyed those partnerships that might have been a part of it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. uh, No, but it definitely is. And it's, uh, I mean, I know like like Sagamore, which is, you know, a Maryland based distillery is working with Beguile on some stuff. It's like, it's amazing to see like the outreach of all that separation between them, but they're still fostering community and doing things for one another. Cause it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not just an, and it's not just an American effort or on the state side, it's an international effort all right now. Yeah, absolutely. Are you sending anything international? Are you? Are you doing it mostly just for like local community? Um, as far as I'm aware, it's all pretty local. Um, we've kind of just started opening up the the more commercial end of it. Um, yeah. You know, we're still going to try to donate as much as possible. We have just uh, started opening up the commercial end, so I'm sure that's going to be a whole host of challenges and and problems to overcome. But yeah. How has it changed the whole production schedule for you guys? Um, <laughs> we're not uh, not bottling much. Uh, yeah. Much of our own alcohol. Uh, you know, we we have had a decent enough stockpile to not miss out on on any orders so far. Um, but in these next coming weeks and months, um, we're going to have to try and do do both because um, mm. you know we can't we can't make hand sanitizer. If, keep our lights on so it's <laughs> a good point yeah it's a little bit of a dilemma everybody's gonna be facing there like now that you don't want to help out but it's, like you said we got to pay our bills too and make some money especially yeah. i'm sure with your gins because you're not stockpiling your gin like you're stockpiling whiskey for years right yeah exactly and it's i know some of the smaller distilleries haven't been able to do the changeover because they just don't have the 
the manpower and necessary equipment to, to do so. And that's, you know, totally understandable. Mm. No, I think it's been a really um, big highlight for the distilleries I've talked to as well. Um, so far it's about like, don't, don't get on your local distillery if they aren't producing it, because if they aren't, I'm sure everybody wants to, but they just don't have the manpower. May not even have the production facility to even create the uh, the right um, uh, coded guidelines when it comes to producing the hand sanitizer for the WHO. Yeah, for sure. Or if you have you know a you know certain type of bottling line that you oh. don't want to you know mess up with the denatured spirits or anything, you know it's there's a lot of challenges. Yeah. I actually haven't heard that. Like, how does it change your bottling line? Um, well, we, we were using, um, well, we, we still are. We're using a, just a six-spout gravity filler. Okay. Um, the, the challenge is when you're um, bottling a denatured product, um, you either need to heavy, heavily, heavily clean that before running any potable alcohol through it again or... You know, something like that. So we just mm-hmm. ended up buying buying another one um, to kind of make sure that there's no no cross contamination. Gotcha, makes sense. And have you guys had to uh, cut but cut back on your staff in the facility um, to follow guidelines when it comes to all this? Um, all of our office staff is is working from home. Okay. Uh, we do have our uh, our distillery warehouse staff um, in our in our normal amounts, but we are taking every precaution that we can mm. uh, we are wearing uh face masks you have some um, cool face masks i saw yeah i didn't <laughs> know we we just have them for dealing with uh you know like yeast nutrient and, and grain dust but they're actually uh what is it p uh p100 which is like the cadillac of face masks yeah so yep. I, I did not know we were that sure far, but who knew <laughs> Uh, that's cool. That's good to see that. It's been amazing um, for certain distilleries to really – one of their main points through all this is to keep their staff intact and not have to furlough anybody. Um, obviously, some distilleries don't have that option, especially if they have more of the uh, um, bar and cafe and restaurant experience because – those things just can't be open right now um, for certain distilleries. But I know you guys are trying to transition into that. That was a story I've heard, I'd heard for a long time, was building the cafe and all that stuff. Uh-huh. So is that still going on? Yeah. Um, construction uh, was ongoing. It's kind of stopped now with this whole thing. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, as all construction projects go, it was, you know, just kind of getting pushed further and further and further. But that was, uh, you know, probably a good thing with this whole uh pandemic looming because you know might have been open for uh like right. a week best case scenario and then closed for a while so oh i couldn't even imagine that that'd be the worst oh mm-hmm. man uh and uh, our um at star ward our we're right now transitioning our distillery by upgrading our fermentation and distillation about twice as much and uh because of government coding because of all this we actually got shut down even though we were trying to reopen to produce hand sanitizer but one of the biggest obstacles when we looked into it was finding supplies bottles uh, anything like that to actually put it in and i keep hearing that's a common theme with everybody because it's just it's just shortage of supplies and being able to get them to you. Um, I'm not sure who you're. If you're are you using the same bottling company you bottle you use your bottles for, your actual whiskey uh, bottles. No, uh, I'm not, I don't remember the the company off the top of my head. But um, you lie. Yeah, <laughs> no, 
but yeah, we're not using our, our, our uh, normal glass suppliers for this one. Yeah, well, explain them what you guys are using. Um, basically, just uh, one gallon uh, plastic jugs, um, kind of similar to what you'd see, like um, you know, bleach or some sort of other uh, cleaning solvent in. Are those recyclable for people to bring them back to be refilled? I don't know the answer to that. I, my guess would be not. Okay. I saw some distilleries were using recyclable supplies for that. I think Sagamore was one of them as well. Um, so it was really, really like kind of old school whiskey days, like bringing your jug and filling it up yourself. It's just kind of, it's really interesting to see all the similarities uh, that date back to um, all the way from pre-prohibition to pre-food uh, and drug administration laws that the whiskey industry basically developed um, because people were getting away with tax fraud and uh, creating really bad uh, terrible whiskey that people were dying from um but we make much better product these days but to see how uh those laws kind of still are affecting this whole process which have people had to get changed to be able to do this which is amazing to see the government actually work fast so a good thing can happen yeah. so there's there's a bit of silver lining there um i heard sonnet talking about it on the news one night and i'm like after hearing all the stories that she had to go through to get um, distilling laws changed in Chicago and Illinois to be able to do that, you know, I think as she was just like had their first kid, I think, and, or yeah. maybe was pregnant, going back from Chicago and Springfield um, to actually nowadays, you know, 10, 12 years later, where the government's reacting in a quick manner because uh, we all need it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like you said, to see the, the government react that quickly and actually change legislation is is insane especially in today's day and age <laughs> <laughs> right right um yeah but it's it, how is this is it changed your um your outlook on distilling at all this whole thing um i don't know about the the industry in general but i would say just more in the in this moment it's mm -hmm. uh it's kind of just made me feel less helpless you know like yeah. I'm actually helping the world and, you know, in, in Chicago and, you know, local people around us because, um, you know, a lot of people are just sitting at home and the, the only thing they can do, the only thing they should do is sit at home. Yeah. Um, and I know that's, that's been really tough for a lot of people. So I'm just, you know, kind of thankful that I can, you know, still go do this every day and, and feel like I'm making a difference oh, you guys definitely are too i mean you should feel that way because you are making a difference in this world and everybody talks about how if you want to change the world change your change that small little world of yours first and change your community um hopefully it will have expanded effects across the rest of the rest of the world which you and other distilleries are definitely doing so um you should be proud of that yeah absolutely yeah, i mean it's not like we're going to be providing the you know the, the whole amount of sanitizer to all of Chicago, but you know, you guys should be, damn it. God, what are you doing? <laughs> but hopefully we can, uh, you know, fill in some of those cracks and, and some of those need areas. Have you had communication with other local distilleries about their whole process or anything? Um, not too much. I've talked to a couple of them. Um, you know, obviously I've talked to, uh, our buddy Matt at, uh, at journeyman coming and, on a Monday, April 20th. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it kind of sounds like we're all having the same uh, same struggles, same issues. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was interesting because I've talked to um, the guys from Dornick Distillery up in uh, the Highlands of Scotland, which I think you met 
when they came over a couple of years ago to buy some barrels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they've been doing this all too, and um, they've been following the WHO laws and then kind of having inter- uh, communications with people all across the world to figure out, hey, what recipe are you using? How are you doing this? And constant lines of communication to make sure, hey, this is this needs to be done a proper way so it actually is effective to people out in the public. For sure, yeah, absolutely. What, what measures are you guys doing to uh, kind of change up your whole system um, when it comes from beginning just with like getting it, the supplies in-house? Um, I mean, basically, we're just trying to follow the WHO recipe okay. and and the uh, all the guidelines there, um, along with the um, the FDA guidelines. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, you know, just trying to follow those guidelines as as close as we can. Um, you know, we do deal with alcohol every day, uh, so it's you know, much easier for distillers and everything to do that accurately uh, and with precision. So um, we haven't ran into too many struggles there, um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, and uh, what's, uh, what's the timeline you guys think for continuing to do this and uh, kind of getting back to your regular scheduled programming? Goodness, I mean, you hope, you hope sooner than later, but I don't think any of us really know at this point. So you're kind of just waiting it out to see how um, reassessing probably like on April 30th when maybe the shelter in place goes up, maybe it's extended. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're, we're pretty fortunate. I think we can pivot back and forth, you know, fairly easily. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, I think we're probably going to have to bottle some of our, um, you know, whiskey for, you know, maybe a day or so next week. Um I think we could probably do both at one time, you know, maybe a little lighter cruise on each, but I think we could probably do both at the same time or pivot day to day if if we really needed to. Mm. Um, You know, we obviously want to keep our, our stocks of of sanitizer um, so that we're not missing out any demand there. Um, But yeah, like I said, we got to keep our lights on in order to make anything. So. Yeah, definitely. I know, you know, Robert's always a forward thinking person. How has this changed like your supply, your uh, production schedule for, you know, the years to come when you're trying to, um, let's say two years from now and it's, you know, S-O-N-D to make sure you're not short on supplies? (laughs) Uh, That's a whole nother discussion. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's just planning. Um, Right. You know, especially with this, it's it's so hard to plan. I we didn't think we would have nearly the demand that that we have had. Um, so it, yeah, it's just it's planning, trying to make sure you have all your ingredients, all of your your packaging supplies, um, making sure you have everything in house so you can produce. Mm. How much? How many gallons do you think you're giving out on a day, daily basis? Um, I don't really do much on the, on the giving out end, on, on, on the customer end, um, yeah. but we can, we can easily go through, uh, a thousand gallons, a thousand gallon bottles on the, on the bottling line a day, um, while producing, you know, multiple 55 gallon drums and, uh, and totes of alcohol as well and totes oh. of sanitizer. And in comparison to bottling of spirits, uh, how much would you usually do on a daily basis? Um, well, total, so we would do, say bourbon, we could do like 250 cases a day. Okay. Um, so what's that? Uh, 
600, 900, 900 bottles a day. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Math um, works, so it's it's uh, just kind of different scales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it seems it shows though how much you guys are producing and then how much 1, is needed. Math was gotcha. way off there. Yeah, but it shows. Yeah, it shows how much you, the public needs it and how much is needs to be out there for people and taking advantage of it because you can't find it in stores really. Yeah, absolutely. Can the public can people come and buy from your distillery, or is it more uh, for like healthcare people? So it, for the first few weeks, it was uh, it was all healthcare people. We we're working on um, getting our our store uh, back operational. So okay. And come, I, th- I believe you still have to uh, purchase online so that the the storefront is not inundated with people. Mm. Um, At fifty one twenty one North Ravenswood. This is correct. Um, we're trying to do contactless everything. Um, yeah. But we are trying to get it uh, available to the general public as well. Cool. That's uh, something that everybody should look out for if you're needed in supplies of hand sanitizer. I know Journeyman just did, uh, I think, their second go around of like their kind of drive through uh, send off or um, drive through kind of giveaway of, of hand sanitizer. I saw that like Foundry Distillery in Des Moines was doing kind of the same thing, but. You know, they were posting pictures and drone shots and the cars are just backed up so mm. far. And it's like, man, like, is this crazy to think how many people are in short of supplies? I know uh, one of my um, key accounts here, one of the bartenders, he actually has a still in his apartment. Um, <laughs> so he was making hand that, sanitizer. That is not something I would recommend. Yeah, well, actually, he has a, he has a license for it, um, surprisingly, uh, somehow, allegedly. <laughs> But uh, he 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 made hand sanitizer and he gave me like two bottles of that the night before everything shut down. So I've just been using that, um, kind of going off of that because you can't find it anywhere else. So yeah. thankful to have him in my life. <laughs> <laughs> would, would not recommend home distilling. Would not. Yeah. No, probably not. No, he actually, you know, I think he knows what he's doing. So he makes some uh, some non-alcoholic uh, spirits drinks infused with CBD. Hmm. Yeah. Need those in a so, time like this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, how it's been so crazy. Um, you know, as an ambassador who spends you know four to five nights out at bars um, on a weekly basis to stay inside and try to pivot everything to social media marketing, which I'm sure you guys are doing, like every other distillery and mostly kind of every other company out there in the world is like, hey, how can we still have a voice, an active voice out there, but do it through social media and not just doing it, um, not having that um, kind of that in-person experience too. I know it's not really your forte when it comes to being in the distillery, but I'm sure a lot of things have changed for you guys too. Oh, sure. And I've seen our, you know, our brand ambassadors try and try and deal with that too and uh interestingly enough i was talking to wilson a little bit about that yesterday and just um kind of how he's pivoted and you know just trying to put his his wilson positivity into everything oh yeah it's always there it's i mean trademark it's it's every industry right now like if, if you don't try to pivot and 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 do the best with what you can then uh you know you may may not do so well through this whole thing, but it's, it's kind of been interesting to see all the, all the entrepreneurs, um, yeah. really, really changing up their, their comfort zones and, and their, their business strategy to 
try to do the best they can. Yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, you know, I, and even when the doors open back up for the public to go inside of retail and restaurants and bars and all that, it's probably not going to be at full capacity either. So it's going to be another yeah. adjustment period. Yeah, exactly. Another adjustment period to okay. So how do we market towards half full arenas versus um, everything we were we were just used to only you know, thirty four days ago. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. I think. Uh, Go ahead. I was, I was listening to uh, something about the uh, like the pre-batch cocktails, mm-hmm. and how it's going to be interesting to see if that goes away, how quickly that goes away, how that could be a whole new avenue for for places. Yeah, we're uh, um, a few people and I were talking some brand ambassadors and like a Skype happy hour. We're talking about like those laws probably aren't going to go away in 2020. I mean, they're going to be on the books, you know, and things will be adjusted, especially for like New York, where they actually can do to go cocktails. Um, Here, it's kind of a gray area. People are still kind of doing it, but it's more about putting together cocktail kits, um, which is a great idea. I mean, like that could be something that could succeed um, with or without uh, a pandemic kind of going on where things are shut down. So. It's really interesting to see these innovations that are happening now, but that could be a long, a long-term effect um, in our society. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of these, um, you know, negative things may stick around. You know, like you said, having to not have as many people in a lot of these public places, but you know, hopefully, some some of these positive, um, you know, effects stick around as well. Yeah, yeah, I really hope so. It's. Um, it's so un- it's so unsuring right now to see what the future does lie, but glad that there's people like you know like Koval and people across the world that are trying to do some good in it. Yeah. If I had if I had a still, I'd do it. <laughs> well, you don't know have one in your apartment there. Come on. Uh, not not yet, not yet. It's not operational. <laughs> we decided to buy a, a cycling bike instead. Probably smart. Yeah, stay fit. <laughs> it's all I can do. It's time. Yeah, but what have you been doing during the quarantine? Anything different to kind of keep up with your schedule so it's not like so mundane? Um, I mean, nothing in particular. I mean, I'm I'm blessed because for the most part, my schedule has stayed pretty much the same. Are you working more? I, I mean, we're trying not to do too too much overtime. You know, just trying to keep ourselves healthy as well. Yeah. Um, you know, probably a little bit more, but not not trying not to push that envelope too much. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, watching a lot of Netflix streaming TV and, uh, of course, always, uh, imbibing some fine spirits. What are you drinking? Uh, this is, uh, some Old Forester rye. Nice. That's tasty. I like, I like how that came out. Yeah, definitely. I still have, um, one of the blends that Phil did that are unopened and, I think a bottle of rye, a couple of gins as well that, uh, I haven't, I saw, I'm like, I don't, it's like a sentimental feeling where I, I don't want to open them for some reason, <laughs> but yeah, I got just like, I can get a dry gin anywhere, but you know, like that's the last one that I got at Cobol. So yeah, still go. have it sit, sitting on my shelf. Yeah. And then the, the blend was one of my favorite things that we ever did. It was the blend of wheat and rye, I believe. Yeah. Those old yeah. wheat are tasty. Yeah, because there's like a six-year-old wheat in that one, I believe. Yeah, some of those wheats. Whew. Yeah. You don't have any one of those barrels left, do you? Uh, we do. Oh, you do? Yeah, I don't know about that old, but we have some that are 
over five years old. Yeah, because um, I had various uh, jobs at Cobol, um, <laughs> but uh, one of them was overlooking one of our other facilities and where some of our older barrels were. And it'd be kind of interesting, but every six months or so to kind of revisit, like how old is that barrel and look at the dates on there and be like, wow, this one's going to like turn six years old. And I think, I think the day one of the wheat barrels did turn six, I was doing a tour that night and people were like, Oh my God, a six year old whiskey. And like, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we have some, some six year old, seven year old, maybe even a little bit of eight year old stuff in there. Really? Wow. Probably not much whiskey left in those barrels, but... (laughs) I can only imagine with how hot it gets in there in the summer time. (laughs) Every once in a while in that building, I wouldn't turn the AC on or the AC wouldn't be, let's say, working correctly. And she's sitting at that front desk with the sun coming through those windows and your arms would be getting sunburned, literally. (laughs) Just sweating a lot. People walking, like, what's wrong with this guy? Is he drunk? Maybe. No, never. Miss that building, huh? No, I don't miss that building too much. It was a lot of lonely hours in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it was always, I always did like, um, not in the wintertime because it was just cold and you just wanted to go home. Uh, But I always enjoyed the Wednesday night tours, just kind of a, I don't know, it was like a way of like entertaining or not showing off, but just, I don't know, like, in a way of acting or something like that and just talking about what you would learn. It's such a passionate business um, for me, the industry itself. So I always have to tell people like what you learned and what I learned and kind of like where the company was coming from and where its roots were grant, uh, were uh, stuck in place from there and how it was growing um, from those roots too. Cause Robert has a long history when it comes to like distilling with the background and everything too. And then Chicago, its role in distilling and prohibition and bars and all of that. And Cobalt just kind of fell in there when it opened up in uh, the early two thousands and kind of was taking it from there. So it was always a fun time to talk to us and where it was going. Yeah. I mean, I think I was like fourth or fifth in line to give tours at one point. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I gave nice. a couple of them over there. Did you ever give any? Uh-huh, yeah. There was one time on a Saturday, someone didn't show up for work, and I was at uh, um, the Globe watching soccer on a Saturday morning, maybe a pint or two in of Guinnesses and like, can you come give this to her? I'm like, I can now. Am I fully uh, operational? Maybe not, but let's do it. It'll be a great probably tour. Made, probably made for a better tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think my very last one there I made, like it was a pretty big crowd. Cause I invited a lot of friends uh-huh. and then people just, it, it was one of those nights too, just kind of a perfect storm where a lot of people walked in They're like, Hey, do you have room? I'm like, yeah, sure. Come on. So there's like 40, 45 people on the tour. Mm-hmm. And I was making just giant batches of old fashions for everybody. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Can't fire me now. Yeah. Can't fire me now. Um, but no, it was a pretty cool opportunity. Um, I remember the first, uh, my first day there cause I started off part-time and it was like, Oh, here's a really cool company. I want to like kind of get more into the spirits world, work for a local company too. Cause I've been working for a pretty large, um, international company before that on the corporate level. And it was like, Hey, I don't do something small and ha- I feel like I'm having an impact like, uh, on the brand or on the company, but also like kind of impacting your community, which did it on a very, 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 very minuscule scale compared to what you guys are doing now. But it was uh, definitely a great start. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's been just kind of really interesting to be part of uh, 
this company from, you know, not, not the very beginning, but, um, you know, from when it was still pretty small to mm-hmm. see what it, uh, what it's become now. Super craft. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy to see it all kind of grow. And now when I'm out, like I was in, I was in Australia last spring, there was like white rye <laughs> in Australia. And <laughs> like, you know, like I used to handle part of our shipping stuff like that and our orders and everything. And we like, Oh yeah, we did send quite a bit of a whiskey to Australia. Then you yeah. see a bottle of four grain. I saw a bottle of oat actually in a, in a liquor store and it was $195. What? <laughs> well, AUD, which the inflation is about oh, 30%. Okay. Yeah, but still, like it's still a very expensive bottle of oat, and it was a 750, which is even odder because there's 700 there. So I'm not sure how it even got there, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That is expensive. Yeah, it was actually I remember I can't remember the name of the retailer, but at the time I was like, oh, when I got there, I was like, that name sounds familiar. Um, one of my coworkers took me there, and I got there, and there was like a whole section of uh, American spirits, since there's like few. Um, Koval and uh, like laws. There's a lot of laws around there too from Colorado. And I'm like, oh, Koval, you have a few bottles. It's like, oh, we love Koval. The oh, it's the best. I'm like, strange choice of whiskey, but I, <laughs> like, I felt proud to like, yeah, I used to work for them for a number of, number of years. So it was kind of cool to see it there. And I texted Mark a few pictures of bottles. It's all around town too. Oat is, uh, oat is always the, the people's choice. You still making it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you stop making the wheat though? Um, yeah, we're not actively producing it. We still do have uh, a decent amount of, of barrels, um, okay. but it's not part of our regularly bottled programming. But still using it in the four grain? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, we'll still bring in wheat grain, but we're not making any single uh, single grain wheat whiskey. No grain releases. Cool. And no more charred releases, right? Or uh, toasted? Uh, yeah, none, none at this point. Um, we m- I don't even remember. We might have one or two toasted oat barrels left in storage oh really uh that may be a lie i'm not sure because <laughs> those flew off the shelf when we bottled those we just post those on, oh, on facebook or instagram and they would be gone in two days no i know we at least have some toasted buckwheat i know we at least have that oh you did the buckwheat i don't think i was i can't i think there was talks of it for sure i remember talking about it while i was there but i don't know if we actually produced any well it was it was uh, actually distilled before i got there Oh, was it a liqueur technically at first? No, I don't think so. Okay. What am I thinking? No, I, don't, I don't know if we have. What was the weird? There, okay. But... There's one really weird liqueur when I first started. I can't remember what it was. Sunchoke. There's that too. I still have a bottle of that. <laughs> <laughs> Not only do I have a bottle of it, it's unopened, but it's just a white piece of tape with it says Sunchoke on pen on it. <laughs> Official. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of flavor to it still. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, no, is there anything new coming out, though? I know you did the big Cranberry Jim release about a year and a half ago. Yeah, um, nothing that I'm aware of at the moment. Um, you know, we have some some single malt barrels aging away. Um, oh, cool. Really? I'm not sure what the timetable is for those. Um, you know, possibly some beer projects in the works possibly uh, no more no more gins that i'm aware of at this current moment <laughs> but uh who knows with the success of the cranberry gin who knows but uh yeah any, right yeah was there any other new beer boom releases uh no okay. just, uh, just the one gotcha uh, good stuff it's still available 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go, go, go get your hands on that and make yourself a nice uh, Manhattan. It's really tasty making a Manhattan with that. Mm-hmm. Part part of my jo- part of my job at Cobal on Fridays was to make cocktails for the distillery. That's officially in your job description. So. I think I think it was. It was uh, make sure that everyone had a enjoyable cocktail by three thirty in the afternoon. Whatever that. Uh, what was the one? I think you made it with uh, with that and some actual beer or something. Oh oh, the one with beguile. Yeah. Um, that was the ginger. Oh, what's it called? Ginger Citrus Bitter Delicious or something like that. <laughs> it was uh, um, bourbon, beguile, blonde. Uh, I think I put some honey in there. I had the recipe somewhere because Wilson stole it and took it to Union Horse, and now they bottle at Bitter Pops still with beguile blonde. I'm like, <laughs> you guys know that I made that recipe up, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was like some ginger beer, the ginger liqueur as well, a little bit in there of that. Um, I think blood orange soda maybe or something. It was a bunch okay. of stuff. It was, But yeah, very, very tasty. Delicious. Always Just, in the mixologist, Jake. Yeah, something like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, a blue-collar mixologist, if you will. <laughs> Not having any idea what he was doing, but um, put things together that tasted really good. Hey, that's all that matters. I remember when the, the cranberry gin came out, um, making a cocktail with uh, the orange blossom liqueur and uh, is it B right cider? Uh, the, right B. Right B. Yeah, with their um, was they have a honey one, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it was like with that, and it was a really great combination of flavors together. Yeah, it's... I think it's one of the best thing about Cobalt Brands is that it's just so um, adaptable for cocktails to try so many different things with it. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I remember when the the cranberry gin came out. None of us uh, distillers really wanted to like it because it's we're all, a pain. We're all pop. pretty skeptic about that. About that, I feel like as a company in the U.S. Oh, for sure. And and then we were bottling it. And it was such a pain to bottle that we all just kind of hated it. But then you would drink it, and you're like, man, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, beautiful label as well. So that helps out. It stands out in the shelves. Oh yeah, what's it sell for? Forty dollars retail? Um, uh, I believe it's cheaper than that. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it's cheaper. Yeah, it's definitely cheaper than that. And you're still barrel aging the gin too, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Which is actually oddly enough, that's been selling really well uh, in 2020. That's one of my favorite things that we like a new product that produced while while I was there. I remember the because the first route go around, we let it age a little bit longer. Then um, it was out, but it really picked up on those rye, um, those rye barrel notes, such a in such a spicy, like flavorful kind of like dessert style way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a hard one because it, it's such a versatile spirit, but it's one you kind of have to either let people yeah. taste or kind of explain to them because they just don't know right what that is. Because there's like uh, just a handful of distilleries barrel aging gin at the time across the world. Like oh, there was. Sure. It wasn't. It was a brand new category to the U.S. At the, I always forget the name of the French distill Citadel. I think yeah, yeah, or, they were kind of like the very first OGs over in France to barrel age gin. At least put it out on a large scale too, to be bought retail wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, really tasty. I think, um, and also just a a volatile, um, I guess, 
liquid or grain or whatever you want to call it spirit uh was the peach brandy how that changed so quickly inside the barrels like month to month oh sure yeah but, i think robert said that's one of the the favorite his favorite things that we've produced or the most well-made thing we've produced i uh, agree it was it was expensive for the 375 milliliter bottle um actually saw it at warehouse liquors like two months ago oh, still have it yeah but uh um, but for uh, like a, a Wisconsin old fashioned, it, there's nothing better for it. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it. It's kind of weird how much it does taste like peaches. Yeah, I know that's kind of like a weird thing to say, but it it does very much taste like peaches. Yeah, it tastes like just like alcohol infused peaches in a way. Mm-hmm. But but what was it? It was rye barrels. It was aged in, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, but it picked up those spicy notes too, which was really great. Um, mm-hmm. Really interacted very nicely with the sweetness from the peaches too. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. when the, those peaches, the peaches came. Oh, was it the plum brandy? <laughs> when those came in to be distilled with the the bricks. Yeah, <laughs> were, were you there for the peach? Uh, my first day was like right after the peach brandy experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think I was. I think it was right after my first day of full time, because um, I think I was part time still at that point. But yeah, that was that was a mess. Because wasn't there like a public parent like a peeling for it? People came in and helped peel. Oh no no no! It was oh. just warehouse people. Oh, I'm mistaken. <laughs> yeah, it was sixty pounds of peaches that we had to process. It, wasn't there some story about how the peaches weren't supposed to come to us as well? Um, they got delivered to the like somebody else, and they didn't order them. They asked us if we wanted them. Yeah, there was something with like someone mission shipment or something. So we got them for yeah much cheaper than we would normally have. Yeah, definitely. No, it's funny to look back on those all those projects, and you're like just happened to work out somehow mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man so many stories like that oh but <laughs> i mean i think that's kind of how a lot of the industry is like right trying yeah because trial can, and error see what works 100 percent. i mean that's kind of where our distillery work for now is is just trying new things seeing if you can actually make whiskey in australia and see if it works so yeah. and I, I guess it does i still have a job how many uh, how many SKUs does Starwood have? Uh, in America, we have three. three. So we have two single malts and a blend of wheat and malted barley, um, and then one of our single malts is Solera style. So um, we blend in batches from you know the very beginning dates of the distillery to our newest batches of whiskey that uh, have been barrel aged for at least four years inside of uh, um, uh, Australian sherry casks. Okay. Yeah, so everything we produce is always barrel aged in uh, um, red wine barrels from Australia, and those ones are um, only barrel aged in certain Australian sherry casks from basically two wineries. That's awesome. I'm glad you asked me because I haven't done my pitch in about a month, so I have to kind of <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep in. Yeah, I gotta uh, freshen up on all of that. It's actually it was it was very weird saying that. Actually, I'm like, whoa, uh, yeah, my pitch for this whiskey is uh-huh. such. I did like a, I think I did a, it was a podcast, kind of like a Zoom thing, maybe two and a half, three weeks ago, very early on in the quarantine. And 
like felt great from there, but I don't think I've said anything when it comes to that uh, in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like when you asked me uh, to just like talk about Koval, just remembering my uh, my tasting days when I was at supermarkets just trying to... Oh, you did tastings? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, I was an intern. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. I was a graphic design intern, and I did uh, tastings and all that fun and... <laughs> That's how I partially got my job full time was because my write ups made everybody laugh, I guess, in the office from being <laughs> a part time taster. So I heard. Yep, I believe it. Worst decision they made in their life. <laughs> uh, that's funny. No, um, well, awesome. I mean, Michael, I think uh, we've shared some good stories. We've got some great information about what the company's doing on um, right now. Is there anything else you want anybody to know about Cobol? Um,. No, nothing really. Um, I just, yeah, maybe say thank you to all our, our partners. Mm. Um, we've had some awesome partners throughout Chicago, as far as deliveries, Choose Chicago, Cone Elevators, MedSpeed, ERC Midwest. Uh, kind of talked on uh, all the all the brewery partners who have been fantastic for us. Um, Cello Tape, Master Tape, Label Printers have donated labels to us. Oh, amazing. Which has been an awesome help. Um and, you know, just as far as monetary donations, Edelson, PC, and Chicago Beyond have helped us out there. And uh, Utopic edited a video for us, and uh, Blue Harvest and Hamburger, Hamburger Mary's have donated some bottles. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, just thank you to all those guys for, for helping out and uh, trying to get sanitizer out to people. Amazing. That's uh, an awesome community support to uh, see that all coming, coming through. Um, a lot of local places, too, as you said, like within walking distance of the distillery. So it's obviously been a great um, partnership for the distillery to be in the Ravenswood neighborhood, um, now better known as Malt Row for all of you tourists that are going to come to Chicago real soon once it's all lifted and go drink a lot of beer and whiskey uh, up in Malt Row from Koval and various breweries uh, like Beguile, where we usually record our podcasts. So um, go support them when you can. Um, and on a personal level, Mike, uh, as I mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast, I spent a lot of time out in the distillery, even though I didn't have a distilling job. But it was uh, I, one of my favorite things about the distillery was coming in um, early on Friday mornings before most people were there. And I did a creative work for the distillery. Was I just go around and shoot photographs um, of the sun coming through the, the natural light from the windows above on the roof and learning about the hum of the distillery, knowing the smells and the transitions from everything that we were producing. And, um, a lot of the education, a lot of what I've learned learn from distilling um is because of you and i appreciate that uh work on it and i can never uh, really say so um without people like you i don't know if i'd be in the position i'm in now where i get to go around and talk whiskey and sell whiskey for a living so as you knew it was something that i wanted to do for quite some time and i'm glad i had the opportunity to do it well, yeah thank you buddy very kind words um uh, I'm, I'm really happy we finally uh were able to sit down and do this and uh have to do it uh, in person once this all clears uh, up. Yeah, absolutely. We'll uh, get Wilson and maybe have a beer or so up a guy. I'll record, that record guy. upstairs. On, yeah, what the fuck, Wilson? Where are you? <laughs> No, it's all good. Um, and if if uh, you guys need any photography work, I'd be um, happy to come and you know do it. Obviously for free. If you guys ever need anything like that, so tell Robert, um, Sonnet, and Mark that I say hi, and I hope you guys all do well. Well, do my man. You too. Awesome. We'll stay safe. 
Cheers, man. Cheers. Fake clink. <laughs> uh.